glad to have you joining us on the podcast where we will dive into everything related to teaching, learning, and technology integration. Our goal is to inspire passion in teachers by discussing strategies and activities that have been successful in the classroom, along with ways to integrate technology for maximum student engagement. In each episode, we want to look at things teachers are doing that are working, detailing teaching strategies and technology integration ideas. Also, special guests will join us to share their own strategies that have been successful with their learners. All right, well, we are back for our last interview of the season here on Teaching and Tech with Alan and Chad. And within the Canton City School District, our guest this week really needs no introduction. But uh, we are really excited and happy to welcome to the show this week the instructional legend, the guru of pedagogy from Canton City Schools, Karen Zutali. Welcome to Teaching and Tech with Alan and Chad. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. So we're really excited as, uh, as we're wrapping up this first season. We've had a chance to talk to um, several teachers um, in the area and talk about some of the strategies that they're either using with students or that they've uh, been able to see teachers put into practice. And uh, we're excited to find out about some of those things uh, from your career as well today. But before we do that, let's just get started by talking a little bit about what drew you into the profession of education. So I actually, I was thinking about this, and I think I have to take you all back to third grade, and I was a student at Wells Elementary School, and I wasn't really doing that well in reading, but my friend Betty, she said, come to the library, get a library card with me, and so I did, and when I walked in, I remember seeing all these books I could pick myself to read, which speaks to the power of allowing students choice in what they read sometimes, not all the time, <laughs> and um, from there, of course, just through practice, my reading got better, and I, I became a fixture down at the um, Juvenile Main. I, I was there. I'd check books out. I would shelve books for the, for the ladies, the librarians down there and everything, and really, really enjoyed reading in the off time. So then we fast forward to junior high, where I was at, at Crenshaw, and I, I don't know what precipitated, but I decided I need to make a decision where my future is going to go, and I really still enjoyed the reading. But I also understood in my middle school, junior high brain, that I was awfully loud to be a librarian. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I thought, well, what else could I do that, that involves reading? And I decided to go with teaching English because I had some really good English teachers, specifically Mr. Sponseller at um, Crenshaw Elementary and Mrs. Curtis. Well, Not elementary, I mean junior high. When, when I'm thinking about your, you know, your memory of going back to the library, it really is a powerful thing because I can even think back to you know, when I was a kid, the idea of the bookmobile and getting to going outside of our elementary school, the bookmobile would pull up and park and we'd get to go in and pick out a couple books. And it was really kind of as, as a kid, it was an exciting thing. For sure, for sure. So, you know, you, you talk about um, you, you went to Canton City and, and now you've landed in Canton City and your whole career has been here in Canton City. Which, which we were talking, I mean, that's a, that, that's pretty amazing to be able to say that you're, you're working where you came from and, and to really invest that much time and care in everything you do. Um, but give us a little bit of walkthrough of your career here. So uh, as far as my career, my, my career began in um, 1986, 1987. I was student teaching. I was a student teacher, and I student taught with uh, Robert Dasko Sr. at Sowers Junior High for, for ninth grade. And then in those days, um, as soon as I finished my student teaching, you could go ahead and get your certification. So I had my certification even before I had 
graduated from college and Mr. Daskal said go get your certification and that way you can start subbing and we'll keep you in the building you want to get to know the principal and maybe you'll get a job here so I followed his advice um, the teachers there were they liked me for whatever reason and so they would take off their personal leave day or someday and they'd mm -hmm. say hey I'm going to be taking off next Tuesday and just so you know so if you get the call you know they would call the sub office would actually call you um, yeah the old days of the, t the phone call early in the morning to go in and sub no it's just a notification long before ASOP yeah. when you could go on and check the jobs and decline the ones you didn't want <laughs> absolutely um I mean, you could decline it, you know, but then you didn't have a job. A little job. harder doing it face-to-face -face when the, <laughs> yeah, or right. I shouldn't say face-to-face, -face, but when the principal when calls, and there. you have to give them some kind of excuse as opposed to just hitting decline on the computer. So. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Well, yeah, so, so then I basically spent the last quarter of my senior year um, substitute teaching at Sowers and was lucky enough to get hired in and spent 21 happy years there. That's pretty interesting that you were going to school and student like doing essentially your student teaching and subbing all in the same time. Well, finished the student teaching, got the certification, then did the subbing, yes. Yeah, well, Were yeah, you finished with all your courses at that point, or were you doing like still a, a limited number of courses, like finishing up your senior year and subbing at the same time? I had a couple of courses I had to finish up, but I was um, what was called a non-traditional student, so my courses were at night. night so uh -huh. I would, you know, sub during the day and go to school in the evenings. So you were gaining, I mean, quite a bit of experience before you really came in and were a full-time teacher. Yeah, yeah. You know, things were different because I've been around a while, and this was back before they tested teachers. You basically, if you passed your student teaching, you got your uh, diploma, you got your certification. Well, you know... Uh, you, a few you more look, steps that you have to go through at this point. Yeah, but I'm thinking, look, look at our numbers that are declining at this point in education and you know, all the hoops that people have to jump through. And it's just, it's deterring so many. And it could be deterring some good teachers. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it really, it really could be deterring them. And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm interested to see how this progresses with our shortage, because I'm thinking that they may start uh, eliminating a few hoops. Yeah. And we're starting to see that with our RESA trying to be modified and, you know, scaled down to just really focus on key points. So you said 21 years at Sowers. You know, walk us through the rest of your career. What what leads us up to today? So um, when Sowers was closed in 08, I was lucky enough to go to Layman and work with a couple of my Sowers colleagues. So we were doing the middle school and middle school team, so we were always on a team. And I've always taught middle school and been a middle school person by choice. I actually like the kids because it, you're never bored in middle school. You just can't <laughs> never. be. You just, you just can't be. So um, then I got into becoming an, an instructional coach, which is different every year. So I was an instructional coach um, for Layman, and then they branched me out to a couple other schools, the middle school instructional coach. Then I was offered an opportunity to design the um, college and career readiness course for the College and Career Readiness Academy. At one point, Layman was, was called that. So um, I designed that and taught that for three years. I taught three major units, one on financial literacy, one on soft skills, and then one where the kids research possible careers they're interested in. Then <laughs> I've made the rounds of all the all So the, you uh, jumped into schools. coaching roles, back to teaching roles, into yes. coaching roles. Yeah, yeah. I went back. I, I, I got the opportunity to teach at STEAM, 
which is a STEM skill. And I really do feel that I'm a STEM teacher at heart. You know, well, that's where you met Chad, right? Yep. Yeah, sixth yep. grade team. Yep. I'd go over there and you know regale him with any and all topics that were on the top of my head at the day. <laughs> so, so did did STEAM for a while, did ELA for a while, back into instructional coaching, and I'm at Crenshaw currently. And so when you've jumped in between all these different roles, I mean, obviously you went back into the classroom because you had a passion for that. You went into coaching. You know, at this point, where, where do you really, um, like, what do you miss most about teaching or what do you like most about coaching? Um, I suppose what I miss most about teaching would be the times where you could have fun with the kids. You know, they were, they, they can be funny and you can have a lot of fun with them, especially at the middle school level. And sometimes you can be silly with them. Those kinds of times is what I miss about the teaching. Just having fun with the kids. Um, with coaching right now, I think that's probably my primary passion because I like to be of service to my colleagues. I think I have something to offer them. Um, whether it's just telling them, you know, you're doing a good job or here I can find this for you, or here did you think about this, or let me come in and um, help you make a plan, or let me come in and show you how to play this game. Um, we play, I did, just did that recently. We had a review game. I have a review game that I would play with the, the kids before state testing. So I went into several classrooms and showed them how to play the game. So. Well, you know, I think all three of us have had that experience of working in the classroom and then also working in a, in a coaching role. And one of the things that I found similar to what you were describing is that as you go through the teaching profession and all these years you spend in the classroom, you realize that teachers pour so much into what they're doing for the kids. And then it's really nice to be able to kind of have that same ability that as opposed to just helping out a, like peer to peer with two teachers to be in a coaching role where you can really kind of just be a resource for them. Mm -hmm. And if they need a little bit extra help planning something or even just doing something to kind of make their day a little bit easier it really is a nice way to give back to teachers because they're putting so much into the classroom. Right. Take a little bit of the weight off and, and allow them to really focus on the relationships with the kids, enjoying what they're teaching with the students. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I'll, if, if, if I'm coming down the hall and somebody's panicked because they need 50 more copies, well, give me the paper and let me make the copies for you. I've stood in for teachers before when I've been passing them. Hey, can you just cover this for just a couple minutes? I need to run down the hallway and pick something up or even a, just a quick bathroom break or whatever the case may be. It's nice to be able to give them a little bit of flexibility where if they just need a minute. The breathing room. Yeah. So let's shift gears just a little bit. And, you know, and as we mentioned just a moment ago, we had the opportunity to work together at the STEAM Academy. And when you're thinking about the different things that go into a STEAM education, I think there's maybe a way that it's perceived and then there's a way that it really is. You know, on the outside, the perception is it's constant experimenting, building, designing, tinkering. And it's good for kids who really don't like to sit down and read and write because you get to just do all of the, you know, the whether it's robotics or whether it's an engineering project. But that's really not the case. So I'm just curious, teaching language arts in a STEM environment at a STEAM school, uh, what were some of the things you found that helped you to be successful in that role? Well, if you're going to be an English teacher at a STEAM school, you better really be an English teacher. You better really know your content, understand um, your standards, and just pretty much be an expert at the English language in general. Because in an ideal world, then you're going to take what you do with English 
and partner with a couple other teachers or maybe it's a whole interdisciplinary team for the students that either do a project or do problem solving project. And that means that you've got to be able to possibly identify materials and texts that the students can read that can help build their background knowledge, help them to start thinking about what they're going to be doing, help them to write about it, to solidify their thinking, and at the same time, make sure you're covering the standards you need to cover. So, Yeah, that's really important. When you, when you start thinking about teaching in a constantly changing environment, if you don't have that mastery of the standards, it's really hard to make sure you're pinpointing exactly what the kids need to know. And it makes me think a little bit about, you know, kind of a, an English teacher who might have this collection of novels that they like to read every single year. Uh, that doesn't really work very well in that environment because you have to constantly be adapting what you're reading to fit into these projects, you know, that other teachers are doing. And that might be based on what's uh, happening in a, in a gateway uh, to technology class. It might be based on what the science teacher's doing or maybe just even a whole grade level PVL. So being able to make that pivot um, is definitely a part of it. When we've talked, you know, it's being able to draw those skills into content or pulling content into utilizing those skills. And and I think that that's where that mastery of the the understanding of standards and, and what it really encompasses has to be a strength or, or else, you know, you'll flounder in those situations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, most school districts and most schools don't have unlimited funds for you to just go out and constantly create a new English language arts curriculum because the projects and the problem-based um, projects that they do do change year to year, nine weeks to nine weeks. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. So in, in the world of STEAM, PBL is, and we have many three-letter acronyms in the profession, but PBL, which could be problem-based learning or project-based learning, is really a big part of that experience uh, in, in the world of STEAM. So I guess I'm just curious, with the projects that you've been involved in, with the ones that you've helped plan, that you've helped to carry out, uh, what are maybe some things that you've seen that are, are really helpful in making for a good project-based learning environment? And maybe what are some of the things you've seen that haven't worked quite so well? Well, for, for project-based, or for problem-based, I think the real key to it is being able to have the time to plan it out. You can't plan for everything because you really want the kids to be in charge of their learning and be in charge of their projects. But the key to that is having some time beforehand to really plan it out, sit down with the teachers that you're working with, and then even during the project or problem-based unit, we'll call it, being able to come back together and oh evaluate yeah evaluate how is it going and do we need to change things up and maybe maybe you know the kids come up with a really great idea and the whole thing shifts another direction yeah to me i always felt like in that in that world of project project and problem based learning especially with middle school students it was really really important to have a, a sound framework because while as you mentioned the heart of it is to get them to find things that spark their interest and take off on their own if you don't get them lined up and pointed in the right direction, who knows where they could end up or they never even get started because they can't really wrap their mind around like such a big task to design a project or to design, you know, their learning. I mean, that's really why we're there in the classroom is to help them to get a focus on what they're trying to do. And Guide put them, them on your objectives. Yeah, put them in a position to be successful. And if you give them such an open-ended task, you can spend a lot of time and really not in the end have a whole lot to show for it. Exactly, exactly. That framework is, is extremely important, even to the point of maybe even building in some check-in check, check points. Check-in points. Yeah. 
to yeah. see how the kids are doing and to spur them on to keep moving in the right direction. I think that's really part of the expert level of planning those projects is is having those checkpoints at the right locations where if you can break it into smaller parts, you've got a much better chance of getting them to the finish line. And I know you've seen it. I've seen it many times, too. There's a lot of, of PBLs that get started that they get off the ground with a lot of energy and they never make it to the finish line. So if you're going to spend that much time, there's just a part, and maybe it's a little bit type too A. Too big on, a vision at one time, whereas if it yeah. were chunked. If it's, I'm a little bit maybe type A in that regard, but if we're going to start it, I, even if we're limping across the finish line, I want to get, I want to get to the finish <laughs> line. Yes, yes. Something at the end. Can we have something at the something, end? Something, something tangible. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. And sometimes those projects can go on way too long because, um, misjudging what the students are doing or misjudging, yeah. They could just go on too long. Probably the hardest part, too, is depending on what the the setting for the school, sometimes they're like grade level. They're huge groups. And when you have a project that's for a showcase or whatever is coming up for the project, when you have a group that's that big, you either you have to have really one of two things. You have to have a group that just has great dynamics together or you have to have a really strong person leading it because otherwise you can just have so many ideas and conversations that – no one has enough time really to organize all that and actually get it moving in the right direction. Um, the other thing I think that's that's kind of interesting too is that because the, the showcase a lot of times of the student work is a big priority, a lot of times everybody feels they really need to be a part of every project. And so if you can get those groups a little bit smaller, maybe sometimes the language arts teacher and the science teacher pair up, or maybe it's, it's you know, the social studies and language arts pair up on a project. If you can get those smaller teacher teams, I think it helps to kind of make fewer cooks in the kitchen, if we could use that analogy. You probably have more opportunities for different types of projects and, then as and well. Yeah, you're, you're just able to narrow the focus a little bit, and I think that helps the, the teachers who are planning it, and I think it helps the students in the overall experience because it doesn't become such a, a huge overwhelming thing. Well, and the thing is, you know, with teachers, you want teachers that are able to work together, and not everybody can work together. Especially if you're looking at a whole grade level in a building. I exactly. Um, a long time ago, a teacher and I, we partnered up to do these big project-based units, and we wanted all the teachers at the middle school to, 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 do, to be a part of it, but not some of them just wouldn't buy in. They just simply wouldn't. We even offered and gave them lesson plans that just tie in a little bit trying to motivate them a little bit connected to it yeah they, yeah well you you know you mentioned your time uh, in the middle school even prior to going over to steam and i know at the beginning of my middle school career the thematic unit was a big part of that and so there's they're not exactly the same but there are some similarities between the thematic unit and a, and a pbl and the other downside i think is if you have too many teachers involved whatever that topic is, the students, as they go from class to class during the day, sometimes they start to get sick of it because it's kind of redundant. They're working on the same concept in different ways in all these There's different no classes. Up, especially if they don't feel connected. And at, really... Yeah, and at that age level, I mean, part of the beauty of the middle school schedule is to keep things moving and keep them getting to the next place so that with a shorter attention span, they can get engaged in something different. Yeah. So, I, you know, one thing that just comes to mind is you're talking about all this PBL and you're working in the – STEM school, is, was there a particular project that comes to mind that you were just really passionate about when you worked in those groups? Actually, I can't say that there was. Hmm. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's is interesting. Is that good or bad? Is that... <laughs> well, it's interesting, though, because I can say from, from my experience of being in that environment, a lot of times there's a, there's a single teacher who has like a concept or like a driving idea, 
And even it doesn't even if you don't have one that stands out, it doesn't mean you really weren't involved. But it's it's just a lot of times you're more in a supporting role and you're trying to find things in your content to come alongside that. And if you're not the person who was pushing it along, you know, it it doesn't mean you weren't engaged or involved. It's just that you weren't necessarily the driving person behind it. And usually there is kind of a single person who kind of moves it along. Yeah, there were. I was more in a supporting role, and by the time I was ready to be, because learning about STEM and STEAM. And when you just walk into the building, it's a whole different idea, and it takes you a minute to wrap your head around it. But um, I wasn't there long enough. As soon as I figured out, okay, I know that I'm a STEM teacher, and I know that I'm a STEM English teacher, I was offered another opportunity and was in another building. So So before you could really find your groove with that work, yeah, you moved, you moved yeah. out of that role. So yeah, my days there was more in the um, supporting role, reading supporting articles and doing research, things like that, get background knowledge for the kids. Nice. So let's we, we've talked a little bit about you've been at Sowers, you've been at Layman, you've been at Steam, which is at the uh, at the Hartford Building, in uh, all those roles teaching language arts. What do you think are some keys as far as getting students to read and uh, teaching reading as part of language arts in a middle school environment? I think you have to be excited about what you're reading. I think teacher buy-in, the kids seeing that the teachers are excited about it and that the teacher likes what she's doing is a huge um, a huge thing to motivate the kids. So if it's like, oh, here, we got to read this book again, and you present it to the kids like that, they're going to be like, oh, my God, we got to read another they book again. They before they even do it. Right, right, right. And um, I know that there was one book, The Light in the Forest, that uh, my middle school colleagues, when we were teaching it, did not like. But I, when I taught it, I didn't present it like that with the kids. It was like, well, we're going to read this book, and I'd give them the history. You automatically, with a lot of novels, become a social studies teacher, getting the background knowledge to them so that they can understand what they're about to read. Um, and after teaching it for about a year, I realized the big concept was on family. And it, the story centers on a um, white child who is abducted. We would call it abducted but taken by the Native Americans to replace um, a Native American son who was taken. The chief's son was taken by the white man. So anyway, so that gets that got the kids, I would get the kids thinking about what is family and who's your true family because the protagonist was true son. So who is his true father? Is it the one who raised him, his Native American father, or is it the one, his white father? Mm-hmm. Because he was taken when he was quite little, about eight or so. And a concept that a lot of kids could probably connect with as far as, you know, blended families and things of that nature. Yeah, yep, yep. yep. So it's funny, too, when you talk about that passion, I, I think about, I actually had two years that I taught middle school language arts when I was in Fremont, seventh grade middle school language arts. And we had a very specific curriculum. So as seventh grade teacher, there were certain novels that you had to read. And when you talk about that passion, it makes me think back to, there was a certain novel, Catherine Called Birdie. And there were two teachers in the department who absolutely loved that novel, and then there were a couple others who hated it. And I was just the new guy there. I didn't know it. for It was a book to read, and it was something to get my plans going, so I said, fine, let's read it. And I, there were a couple of department meetings where I'm, the gloves almost came off. Like, there was some intense debate. And it actually makes me laugh because there's now on Netflix, there's a Catherine called Birdie on Netflix now. And I, <laughs> I always think back to these two colleagues that just absolutely hated that novel. But when you you have a book that you're really not interested in reading, it's kind of hard to fake that passion with students and to get them excited about something that you're really not too interested in. Well, it's not a day topic that's going to be over with. 
where you can put on your fake smile for one class period. Right. I mean, you're reading it. It's, it's going to take a while to get through yeah. a novel and then to dig into it and the vocabulary and all the other things that go with it. The whole sure. unit is over that novel. But you want to build the passion for the kids and you want them to really enjoy the reading. So like the one novel, Where the Red Fern Grows, which is a classic and all the kids love because of the dogs and everything, it was not my favorite. But every year, actually for 15 years straight, I was faking it with the kids. It you was know? your favorite. Yep, it was and my if, favorite. And if they're interested, that helps. That sometimes is enough to substitute for the content. If it's content that the students really enjoy, that can kind of energize you a little bit to keep moving through it as opposed to content that you hate and you're getting no response from them. Right. Then you're all dragging. So one other quick thing about reading. Uh, I'm just curious, if you're going to spark that passion in students, uh, what maybe are some ways or some strategies you would use to help students find things that they enjoy? To find books that they enjoy? Yeah, books, or? whether it's book, self-selected reading, yeah. That's a, well, that's a really hard question since we don't have middle school libraries at this point. Um, back in the day, we'd take them to the library and, and, you know, we'd do surveys and see what the kids liked. And I would work with the librarian. The mm -hmm. librarian could point out different books to the students or if the students had a passion for like mythology or maybe science type books or informational texts, then we could point them to, you know, those areas and sections in the um, library. It is kind of a shame where a lot of schools don't have that library setting anymore because I think about at McKinley and, you know, there have been many cases where I've seen Miss Engler's pull a whole selection of materials to go with a teacher's project or, you know, things that are going to help support what teachers are doing in class. And I even can go back to the years I spent at Fremont Middle School and, and Miss Miles, our librarian there, always had carts with different topics and she'd be able to pull those. And all just thinking about the work that would go into that, getting those all pulled off the shelves, organizing them, putting them back when the project was over. And all that's done just to help kids find something that they're going to connect with and something they'll be interested in reading. Yeah, yeah, it's a little different. One of the big resources we do have is the Stark County District Library, and you can call down and say you're a teacher and you want um, some books for your students to read and give them some general topics, and they will pull a selection of books that you can have in your class for a period of time. It's just with having, you know, 100 or more middle schoolers, that they're, you have 100 more interests going on. <laughs> So, <laughs> thankfully, the internet and the Google search can help get you a few more uh, sources if you're trying to do research or trying to get the kids uh, pointed in the right direction. Well, let's talk about just a couple other strategies that you've had success with. So, um, the idea of daily oral language, and uh, I know the kachas were a big thing with middle school language arts. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about how, how you had success with those? So, the kachas are a type of daily oral language, and daily oral language is simply the teacher will have a sentence, present a sentence with errors in it to us, to the students, and usually it's used as a bell ringer. The students will then correct the errors. What um, the author of the Katcha system did was she turned it into stories. So it was an ongoing everyday story. And the first one I tried was um, Katcha's Giggles in the Middles, and the story was about horribly hard middle school. So every day... The, um, the students would come in, and I'd have up on the smart board the sentence to correct. They would come in, they'd correct it, and then basically we would correct it together. And they all, and the, a key, one of the key focuses is you have to have the students tell you why we're making the correction. You know, not just capitalize the word the why, because it's the first word in the sentence, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, why is there a comma there? 
Well, because it's separating who said it from what was said. Why do you have quotation marks? The, um, but the ongoing story is a lot of fun for the kids. The other thing is why this daily oil language is called conscious is because the teacher is, is to, if you follow her method, go around the room and look for one mistake as the students are writing. And if they made that mistake, you say, katcha. And then what happens is, as you're going around the room, you'll hear kids behind you whispering, trying to figure out, what did you get? Did you get this? Did ah. you get that? Is it indenting? Is it the period? Um, and then you present it. The other buy-in is that it's an ongoing story. And for the horribly hard middle school, it's about middle school kids. And the characters are named after like character traits. So Sam Sagacious is the wise one. Felicia Pay is the one that's always trying to do potions to um, magically change her teachers or whatever. And then the principal is called Dean Dread. And the first <laughs> year where I did this, I told the students, I wrote this story special for us. And you might recognize some of these people. They were absolutely convinced Dean Dread was the assistant principal. <laughs> absolutely. That's one of the, that's one of the uh, most enjoyable things about middle school is just being able to get those little jokes and those little bits of humor. And you can get them just to, the kids to buy in on some of that stuff. And, and you can take it a long way. And when you think about... A high school classroom is just completely different than that, where you really don't have that element. And they, there have been a couple times where I've tried to make little, you know, witty jokes or stuff with kids I've come in contact with at the high school, uh, and they look at me. They're like, too cool for school. What, man. what are they're you talking not, about, man? Yeah. And a middle middle school student, a lot of times you can kind of bring them along a little bit with that. You know, I, I really think about that idea of the running storyline, and I think that's just a great way to actually kind of get some interest and tie it all together, because a lot of times when you're just doing random sentences the grammar side of it becomes really, really hard to, to get interest in any, any kind of motivation to even try it. And when at least you have that running storyline, you have something to kind of get them hooked or to pull them in a little bit. Well, yeah, and then you, there's more to it than just the grammar thing. You pull in the reading element. And, and because she always wove um, sat words into it, the higher level vocabulary words, mm -hmm. they were getting those words too. So mm -hmm. that by the end of the year, they knew sagacious meant wise because I was always talking about Sam and he's what? Always oh, wise or he's smart. Or whatever and um, a couple of years with eighth grade the same author did um, a modern version of midsummer's night dream which was mm. part of our curriculum in the spring so i taught that all year and through the kachas and this is I'm all, it sounds like i spent a lot of time but it was only about 10 minutes a day mm -hmm. um i taught subplot i taught characterization i taught all these little elements and when we got to actually the reading of midsummer's night dream they so understood it that the Shakespearean language didn't throw them at all. Mm -hmm. They they had the concept down. So that's the other thing about that. When you look at the number of standards that a language arts teacher is responsible for, it's kind of overwhelming. I mean, I, I looked at seventh grade science. I might have had 12 or 13 content statements across the three life, earth, physical science, the three branches there. English at the seventh grade level, you might have 35 or 40 different standards overall. So that idea of being able to kind of expertly weave those all together and teach those in a, in a short time block but cover a lot of different things is really key to making sure the students get practice with all those skills. Absolutely. It's a matter of making sure you get all of them in there, but I don't understand how you would teach the English language arts standards um, one by one separately they have to be yeah they have to be interwoven together they don't work otherwise yeah i think it would be very dis disjointed and very choppy 
Whereas science, it's a little bit different situation. If we're in the midst of earth science and working on weather and climate, that's completely different than physical science where we're working on electricity right. and circuits. And English, if you're just trying to work on just, you can't hammer plot for three straight yeah, weeks. Yeah, one's more skill-based and the other one's more content-based. Right, and, right. There well, is a big difference with that. Yeah, science is more content. And you in yeah. language arts, you're, you're developing the skills over right. time. So. Um, you start off with plot, but by the end, they should be able to pull plot and characterization and, and internal and external yeah. conflict. And, and they're cyclical throughout the year. You're constantly addressing all those different pieces and, and skills to to what you're doing in class. Well, they're even cyclical if you go vertically up the grade levels right. because they just start to become more detailed and more in-depth. Right. So one last thing that we don't want to leave out talking about language arts Um you know, being I came across this particular program, and I know you were part of helping other teachers use this. Criterion was a technology-based program that you use for writing. Talk a little bit about the success that you had with that. And so, still do. And still do. We we have Criterion, and we're going to have Criterion next year for 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. I came across it um, 2002. So the district was doing something with ETS, which is the parent company that owns Criterion, and they threw in Criterion. And at that time, technology was a lot different, and people that used tech, people, you know, we had flip phones back then, so <laughs> technology was a lot different. But I was a younger teacher, and I stuck with it, and I would take the students down every week to um, write on Criterion. They had built-in prompts, so you could add your own prompts in. The, the, the key to Criterion is it automatically scores the student's composition within seconds. It gives a score from one to six based on the six traits of writing. Students like that. They like that back then. Like feedback. Yes. Yeah. And you instant. can, as a teacher, physically give writing that kind of attention and that kind of feedback. It's just impossible for even the best teacher to do. So closing that feedback loop, what a, a huge advantage that is. It's yeah. There there is no loop. You 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 hit that submit button and it gives you it gives you that. And then I've not found any student didn't want to do better. Well, maybe one or two, but they want Most to do better. Most do want to improve, yeah. They get that three or four, and they're insulted, and they want to know how do they get the five or six, six being the top of it. Um, and it's the only time um, then and now that I've used it that students will ask me what passive voice is. It's the only time I've ever had to talk about passive voice and explain it to students so that uh -huh. they could improve their writing. Hmm. It also will provide feedback on the organization of their paragra paragraphs, of their composition and the grammics, the usage, the mechanics and everything so that um, students can go in and change it themselves. So mm -hmm. the, the red pen was gone for me when you use Criterion. You don't have to. Right. And the thing about the red pen is I could mark the papers up and they still didn't care. Right. But what that computer shows them what's wrong, all of a sudden they're they're in there trying to make all their corrections. Also they want to hire a score. So and um it pushes them also for content. So you can't get that higher score with just, you know, simple little paragraphs. You have to actually have some content, well some developed. elaboration, yes. So where we're at right now and all the buzz that we have about chat GPT and open AI and all the things that are like at the forefront. That's what criteri Criterion is using AI, that's, and that's been going on, on for a long time. We've talked about that yeah. in previous episodes. You know, right now there's a really a big buzz with chatbots because that's kind of the newest iteration of that. But we've been using AI in a lot of in a lot of ways for a long, long time. And Criterion's probably one of the first ones out there, and people didn't even realize it was AI mm -hmm. at the time. Um, yeah. 
Well, there's a, for anybody who's listening, looking to improve writing, there's a great tool to look into. And, and the idea of being able to give quick feedback, being able to motivate students and being able to kind of also, I think another nice thing would be categorize all their writing because by the end they have an account that really has all that writing stored, right? Yeah, they, they bill it as an online writing portfolio. So the students writing that they have now will follow them to the next year. So our seventh graders, it will follow them to eighth grade. That, that account should still be open um, they'll just add a new class. So there's another advantage as well, just the idea of the, the data being portable from one grade level to the next, and instead of having to have these vertical-type meetings and passing student information and all that kind of stuff, they open up the new class, and that student's record is already there so the teacher can get an idea of kind of where their writing was prior, right? Well, the, the, the student can open up their account and show uh, the part, but, the, but there's, a, there's a little... So yeah. it's, it's not quite as simple as just being able to go back and access that? Not, not quite as simple. But on the other end, for um, our intervention specialists and folks that want to see the writing and monitor what the students are doing in writing, they can be added in real easily as a teacher. And they can go in and see what the students um, have been doing, what their writing is. They can even have their own classes if they wanted to do specially designed instruction with just their students. That You can pull, you could actually print a hard copy of their writing. Nice. So that's another advantage looking at if there was like an outstanding piece of work and you wanted to put that maybe kind of in like a, a portfolio type thing, that would be nice as well. I'd just like to point out that you said 02 was the year we started using this. Yes. And, yes. and you know, it has all these features that everybody's like, man, I wish it had this, it had this. So you said student engagement's up. They care about what they're doing. You know, it really comes down we're to the core value that kids care about their education. We just have to format it in a way to support that. I mean, there's nothing flashy about Criterion. Not at all. I mean, it's it's as basic of a looking yeah. program as you're going to get. Yeah. And and we keep talking about, you know, all these flashy apps that we have to use to improve engagement. But really, you know, you're doing it with something that's been around for 21 years. Right. So when I go in and I've, been, I've trained the teachers and training the students, I actually have to tell them there's no flashy buttons here. You, you got to look for the little blue links because... A lot of what we have now has the big flashing yellow, red, orange, green button that you right. can't miss. Very yeah. visual. I think one other thing you mentioned in that story, uh, talking about how you got started with Criterion, you know, you were one of the first people to kind of step out and try it. And I can think back to even doing around that time frame, 02, 03, 04, doing projects with PowerPoint was more of a motivator to students. And yep. now everybody's done, at, at that, this point in their career, several slideshows for teachers where it's almost a demotivator for some students to put together a slideshow. Oh, yeah. But but that's one thing that's really changed, that there was a time if you were a teacher who would step out and use technology, you had some built-in motivation because students weren't getting that everywhere else. And, and now it's a matter of you really have to kind of up the engagement with it of how you're going to integrate it because everybody in some way is putting them in front of a device. That's what you need. You need the Criterion PowerPoint app that automatically <laughs> gives the students feedback once they're done. I, I think one Criterion's enough right now. <laughs> Let's not overdo it. So finishing up as we talk about uh, some of your teaching strategies that have been successful, one of the things you mentioned to us was the idea of wash, rinse, repeat. What, what do you uh, mean by that? Well, in, a, in the language arts world, it's like there are a set number of things that I knew that they needed to know. So we, we mentioned plot line. So I would start with the basic plot line 
and we would read the story and we just identify the basic things, the setting, the characters, the, the basic problem, the basic turning point. But as the year went on, I would add things in to where they needed to give me more than just the setting. And they need, um, we, I would add then the um, academic word. So now we're talking about the exposition of the story, which is the setting and the characters. And we talk about the conflict. Is it internal or external? So I kept upping, upping the ante on what I needed them to identify with the, within the plot. What is the, the climax of the story? And then um, even, to the, even to the end of it, um, I would teach them the word denouement instead of resolution just because it was something a little different. And, and, and then we would add in theme. And so you kept, I kept adding more things into the plot line that I wanted them to be able to um, deconstruct the story with. So that's kind of like wash, rinse, repeat. So what the constant was the basic plot line. In fact, there's a teacher who's still teaching in the district that would tell me he knew my students because he'd mentioned plot in class at the high school level, and they'd all get out a sheet of paper and start drawing the plot line. <laughs> so well, it's a skill that you taught them that they were able to transfer and carry on to future grade levels. So, yeah, so it's that cyclical thing where they're coming. We keep coming back to the same concepts, the same academic terms and academic. And you're uh, building skills. on it in the process. Yes, and you keep building on and keep at, upping the ante on them. Uh, and and to me, all education really, but especially middle school education, is all about practice. It's all about coaching them through it, practicing, and getting better at it. it I don't think anybody gains mastery in middle school. So no. when they start talking no. about teaching the mastery, maybe mastery of writing your name, but you know. You're getting closer to the target, but to truly master something in middle school, I think I would agree with you. That's probably pretty few and far between. And normally you hear from math teachers the idea of, you know, these, these skills that we have are fairly, fairly static. Like they really don't change if you're talking mm -hmm. about within the algebra or within geometry. But really, as you mentioned with language arts, I mean, it really boils down to reading skills, writing skills, and communication skills. And so in some ways, a lot of that stuff, you're using different content and different topics to get through it. But the things that you're working on in language arts really haven't evolved or changed all that much. It's just looking at different sources and different topics. Exactly, exactly. And you, you just find the next good story that they like to read. Or, and if they don't, they don't like to read, at least you like to read it, and they'll like to read it because you like to read it. Your passion rubs off on them. Yes, yeah. yes. All right, so now reflecting uh, as an IC, um, you know, looking at all the teachers that you work with, has there been anything that you've come across that you would consider outstanding or that has stood out to you? Um, you know, you, you've worked with a lot of different teachers in your roles as an instructional coach. What I'm impressed with post-pandemic with all the talk about the students and SEL and everything else and them being different. What stands out to me about my colleagues are their abilities to make connections with the students. That they're, uh, they're able to form connections, they're able to form real relationships and rapport with the students because there's a lot of talk out there about how they're different and how they're um, not connected to people and how they're always on their tech. But, I'm, and lately I've been seeing more and more students that just want pencil and paper. They want more of that old kind of connection. But the thing most outstanding is the teacher's ability to adapt to the, the differences in the students now and continue to um, create those relationships that help move them forward. 
Yeah, it's definitely all about relationships. There's no doubt about that. So we'll get you out of here on this one. What advice would you have for a new teacher or maybe a veteran who's just kind of looking to revamp their class and get back in the, get back to their passion that got them started in the profession? I think I got a couple of things. So yeah, I, I think don't sweat the small stuff. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there and people get upset about, but I think that ties into what I'm going to say is focus on the kids. You were hired to teach the kids. Focus on teaching the kids. Because in essence, that's what you're hired to do. I'm sounding repetitive now. Um, focus. There's definitely a lot of things that can pull you in either direction, though, that in the profession that get you away from that when it comes to, like, initiatives and responsibilities and things like that. And see, that's all, that's all the chatter. And at the end of the day, the bell rings. The kids come into your classroom. Something's got to happen. You're supposed yeah. to teach them. Between so, those bells, that's the most important. That's that's what you've been brought in there to do. And and that's where you that's where you find the most growth. That's where I found the most enjoyment. That just being with the kids and teaching them as best you can, because all the other things they keep breaking down just take away from the fact teaching is an art. And I really believe it's more art. Yes, you can do the science, and yes, you can break it down into little pieces, parts, but. To be a really good teacher, you have to be a master of the craft, the master of the art of teaching. And I don't think Leonardo da Vinci ever sat around going, hmm, that's an interesting red. Now, if I take it apart, it's this many parts this and that many parts that. And we got five atoms over here. That's not So you don't did. think that da Vinci was necessarily looking for best practices and research-based <laughs> studies on art? <laughs> well... I want to go that far. I'm, so, I'm certain that, you know, there's a certain brush stroke, but... We, we tend to make everything into teeny tiny bitty bits and then people get really um, overwhelmed. Like overanalyze everything. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I got a, a shirt I saw was, hold on a minute while I overanalyze this. I think we're <laughs> to that point. Well, I don't think that we can, I don't think we can really state it any better than that. I think that's some great advice uh, for anybody who's looking to get some focus in the profession. Well, thanks for coming on. This has been a blast. Appreciate it, Thank Karen. you, guys. So this brings us to the end of the episode. Hopefully you've enjoyed our conversation with Karen Zutali. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and write us a review. You can find previous episodes of Teaching in Tech with Alan and Chad on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.